It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. The end of the pension death tax and who will really benefit from its demise. Why you could be in for a shock if you're planning to move your mortgage when you move home. And are ready-made portfolios using cheap funds the answer to the so-called advice gap? Welcome to The Money Show, one of the FT's most popular podcasts. I'm Jonathan Ely and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleagues James Pickford. Hello. And Emma Dunkley. Hello. And we're joined on the phone from Bristol by Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hello. Once upon a time... Changes to the country's tax system were announced to MPs in the House of Commons at this archaic event known as the Budget. Then we had a second budget, known variously as the Pre-Budget Report or the Autumn Statement. And now, it seems, policy announcements have bypassed Parliament completely. Last weekend, the Sunday dinners of various journalists were interrupted by a phone call from PR Flax at the Treasury. They were told that the Chancellor was poised to make an important announcement on what is known in the trade as a not-for-approach basis. That means the government issues a statement but doesn't take questions about its content. And it works a treat. The end of the pensions death tax was duly plastered all over the front of most Monday newspapers, delighting the Conservative Party faithful as they tucked into their bacon and eggs at the party conference. If you think spin and media manipulation ended with Alistair Campbell and Peter Mandelson, think again. But what of the policy itself? The so-called death tax was always scheduled to be reviewed as part of the Chancellor's annuity reforms because it was anomalously high at 55%. That's a full 10 percentage points above the highest rate of income tax and 15 above the rate of inheritance tax. Most observers expected it to be reduced, perhaps to 40%. But Mr Osborne went much further than that and claimed that his changes would benefit every political party's favourite constituency, hard-working families. But does it? And will it have the desired effect, which is to encourage people to steward their pension savings responsibly in retirement rather than spending them too quickly? Here with some insight into the rule change is Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Tom, the Chancellor is scrapping the 55% charge on pension funds bequeathed to others. What is the regime that's going to replace that charge? Well, Jonathan, as you've indicated, um, for many people, it will mean no tax at all. So the key uh, determinant now is going to be the age at which you die. Anybody that dies under the age of 75 
will be able to bequeath their pension pot to any nominated beneficiary, anyone they choose, and that fund can pass on to them tax-free. They will then be able to draw on that fund tax-free, uh, which is which is quite extraordinary. Um, even if you die over the age of 75, and it's important to note that most people do, you can still pass this pension pot on, any unused sums on your death, to anyone that you choose. Um, and the worst that they will suffer to them in the longer term is that they will just have to pay income tax at their highest marginal rate on the money when they come to draw it out. Uh, and compared to the 55% tax charge that is applied hitherto, this is extraordinarily generous uh, lightening of the tax charge on pension pots. Now, this applies to uh, so-called defined contribution uh, schemes. What about uh, if you have, for instance, already bought an annuity or if you're in um, one of the diminishing band of uh, private sector final salary schemes? The Chancellor's also introduced some concessions for annuities uh, and he said that um, in the future annuity companies will be able to pay out a a widow's pension. You might have had provision in your pension pot for for a a continued income to your spouse after your death. Now, if that's paid out as a lump sum, then again, it will potentially be tax-free if you die under the age of 75. Whereas, interestingly, if it's paid as an income, it will be taxable. And the same story will apply to final salary schemes. If they pay a, a widow's or widower's pension out as an income, it'll be taxable. If instead they choose to commute it for a lump sum, it can potentially be tax-free if you die under the age of 75. If you've already retired, however, if you've already bought an annuity or you're already in a final salary pension scheme in retirement, drawing a retirement income, this may not be much help to you. And, and at present, we think it's unlikely final salary schemes will extend this freedom to existing retired members, though we may see some rule changes further down the line. And we're currently in the process of writing out to all the insurance companies who've got all these annuity contracts on their books to say, look, are you going to extend this freedom to your existing customers? We don't know the answer to this question yet. You mentioned that the, the tax treatment has gone from being quite punitive to being very generous. Doesn't this create a, an obvious incentive if you're um, coming up to uh, retirement or indeed already in it to stuff your pension fund full of assets as a way of avoiding inheritance tax? One of the concerns coming out of the budget when the freedom to tap into your pension pot at will from the age of 55 was that we would see uh, many people just drawing all their money out in one go. Now, they would have taken a tax hit on that, but there was a concern that they would run down their pension pots too quickly. So it's quite clever what the Chancellor's done here by, by shifting the death tax rules. Um, he's now incentivised people to keep money in their pension pot and, as you say, potentially to stuff extra money in on the way up to retirement and use it as an inheritance tax planning vehicle. Yes, I agree with you. I think some people will use it for exactly that purpose and the scope to cascade money down to future generations through the pension system potentially looks very attractive. Will providers such as yourselves provide the means for beneficiaries to continue drawing from a pension pot as income? In other words, will the wrapper be passed along upon death along with the actual money that's in it? That's exactly what Hargreaves Lansdowne is looking at. So we're looking at ways to create a, a beneficiaries drawdown plan because it's important to note the tax-free status only works if the money is passed within the pension system. So we have to set up a, a drawdown plan for the beneficiary first and then they can pull the money out tax-free. Yes, we're not for the first time. The Chancellor has sprung quite a major surprise on the pensions front and we are already only sort of six or seven months away from another set of major reforms. Um, 
are these measures properly thought through, do you think, or, or is the government making pensions policy on the hoof here? We were expecting this announcement in the autumn statement on the 3rd of December, and there's a strong suspicion that the timing of the announcement owed a great deal more to, to politics than to pensions policy thinking. There is a slight sense that they're doing it on the hoof. We've already gone back to the Treasury with a long list of questions looking for clarification on the detail of some of this. The legislation has to be rushed through very quickly to get it all in place for April uh, next year. That's only a month before the election. And of course, if we see a change of government, things could change again. So I think there is a concern that uh, details might be uh, misjudged or or may need to be revised subsequently. Um, We'll have the framework for the legislation. The rules will be there. We're certainly going to be able to offer these facilities to our customers next year. But I think that the important message is it's not going to stop here. There's likely to be more change as we go along. Thank you very much. That was Tom McPhail, Head of Pensions Research at Hargreaves Lansdowne. There's lots more on the end of the pension death tax, both the practical details and the morality and politics of it all, in this weekend's FT Money. We also take a look at the other big announcement made at the Conservative Party conference, the pledge to increase the personal allowance to £12,500 and the higher rate threshold to £50,000. FT Money is, of course, part of the Weekend FT, which is widely available on both Saturday and Sunday. You can also read online at ft.com forward slash money or on tablet devices using our new web app. Still to come on the show, another portfolio management service launched this week. But are such one-size-fits-all products the answer to the increasingly prohibitive cost of regulated financial advice? First, though, let's look at the fate of mortgage prisoners – This rather apocalyptic term became more common after the credit crunch. It describes people who are trapped on their current mortgage rate because they cannot remortgage. That may be because they are in negative equity, or they may be on the sort of very high loan-to-value products that just doesn't exist in today's mortgage market. Or, more commonly, they may be falling foul of a quirk in the new mortgage regulations, which means that they can't port their mortgage to a new provider even if they're borrowing the same amount, or in some cases, less. James Pickford is here to tell us what's going on. James, we've talked on The Money Show before about these new rules on mortgages introduced earlier this year. How do they apply to the portability of existing loans? Well, when the Financial Conduct Authority brought in these more stringent rules um, on borrowing in April, uh, the reason that that they did this was to clamp down on the kind of irresponsible lending that uh, had become commonplace before the financial crisis. What they weren't seeking to do in it was to create problems for responsible borrowers, so those who had always been able to make their mortgage payments, um, and, but, but yet those people who nonetheless, for some reason, wanted to change their mortgage product, whether that was because they needed to move house or because they simply wanted to take advantage of, of good rates uh, to get a better deal. So the FCA put in place um, some big exemptions to its new rules under what is called the Mortgage Market Review, or MMR. For those who didn't want extra borrowing, and that's crucial, lenders could use these these so-called transitional arrangements by which they they weren't obliged to uh, apply the super-strength MMR tests that, that they had to for everyone else. Um, so lenders were able to waive MMR where people had a good payment history and weren't asking for more money. What has actually been happening in practice is that uh, big lenders are simply ignoring this option and putting all borrowers through the same 
super strength tests, which in some cases is causing people to be unable to remortgage to a better deal or to port their loan to a new lender or even reduce their borrowings. Um, There are some cases where borrowers have been told they can't move to a fixed rate because they don't pass the affordability test. So they therefore have to remain on the the lender's standard variable rate, which ironically enough is usually more expensive. Well, that all seems very odd because, uh, as you mentioned, uh, MMR's lending rules are uh, much more stringent. Uh, Banks have to do a lot more checking and probing of of outgoings and incomings, uh, and and all of that takes time and costs money. Now, if there's an option available to them that entails less paperwork and, and less work, why aren't they using it? It's a good question. The the big high street lenders are focused on getting in high volumes of business with minimal processing costs. That's the name of the game. The problem with the transitional arrangements is that you essentially have to have two systems in place to process your mortgages, one that applies the new, more stringent rules and the other for those under the transitional arrangements. And that means more active decision making from the lender and potentially higher costs. For lenders, there are too few of these transitional cases to make it worth the while of putting in the training and the systems to pick it all up. And some mortgage brokers are saying that lenders are simply just being too cautious um, after the introduction of these new rules. What about if you stayed at the same lender but just wanted different terms? Say you wanted to move from the standard variable rate to a a sort of two or five year fix. Is that less problematic? Uh, there are there are cases where um, the, the lenders have been willing to waive these uh, these MMR rules and and do seem to be doing so where they can see a clear case for retaining business. But as I mentioned before, it, it all depends on the change of circumstances of the borrower. If if say you've lost your job or you've um, you've, you've had an you have an extra mouth to feed in the family, if there are extra costs associated with your income and expenditure then they may take a different view. So as I say, the lesson for borrowers here is that if you took out a mortgage before the financial crisis and you were told at the time that it was completely portable, uh, you should no longer assume that that's the case, particularly if your circumstances have changed. All that seems rather unfair on the poor old customer. Is there any sign of regulatory intervention from the Financial Conduct Authority who must be rather displeased that they put in place these transitional arrangements and and hardly anybody is using them. Well, the SCA has said it is disappointed in the fact that this is going on. And it's made absolutely clear to lenders that they don't need to do it. If it was lenders, after all, who demanded greater flexibility in the regulations in a run-up to MMR, and that's what they got. But the rules also make it clear that the decision on whether to lend lies with the lender. They have absolutely no obligation to to take up these transitional provisions. And that's not something that anyone thinks is likely to change. Thank you very much, James. There's more on mortgage portability in this weekend's FT Money, where we also discuss why private banks, who often lend to people with less predictable income streams, have been let off stringent new rules on loan-to-income ratios. We're always keen to hear your views too. If you're a mortgage prisoner, do smuggle an email out of your cell. Our address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. At the end of 2012, the government introduced sweeping changes to the regulation of financial advice. Supposedly free advice, which was in fact paid for by generous product commissions, was outlawed. In its place came upfront charges from advisors to their clients and a ban on commissions from product providers in respect of new business. 
That meant that many people were faced with paying directly for financial advice for the first time, and many either couldn't or wouldn't. There was widespread talk of an advice gap, particularly among the less well-off. Into that gap have stepped managed portfolio solutions, which offer a ready-made, reasonably diversified collection of assets tailored to a particular risk level. Several more of them have launched this week, but are they any good? Emma Dunkley has been taking a look. Emma, let's start by naming some names. Who's offering these products, and are these companies feisty new upstarts or traditional advisors looking for ways to hang on to their less well-off clients? Yes. So first off, this week we've seen the former hedge fund manager Alan Miller launch three new platforms targeting different types of investors. For example, those over fifty or women in particular. And these platforms provide them with a way of accessing three types of model portfolio. So they can buy these funds, which invest in passive funds underneath. Now, Alan Miller also runs a firm called SCM Private,、uh, which has an existing number of customers. So the launch of these new products are a way of a retaining some of those customers, but b Trying to take advantage of what you call the advice gap、um, with regards to those with smaller pots of money that can't afford to go to the larger traditional wealth managers or private banks. You also have the likes of Nutmeg, who launched in 2012, who offer a purely online proposition. Again, really targeting those smaller investors that have a smaller minimum investment. What form do these managed portfolios take? Are we talking collections of shares here, or is it all funds? Well, in order to keep costs down, these are all funds managed by the respective firms, but they invest in low-cost passive instruments called exchange-traded funds. This is a way of ensuring that the total cost that the investor has to pay is low. So, for example, Nutmeg will charge between 0.3% and 1% per annum, and that includes VAT、uh, for investors, depending on your pot size. By comparison, Alan Miller's new funds will charge a total of 1.2 percent, irrespective of pot size. This includes fund management, VAT, admin costs, and other fees. Is that a reasonable cost level? Could you do it yourself for less? You could do it yourself for less. It's still cheaper, perhaps, to go through some of the main execution-only brokers, such as Alliance Trust Savings, through which you pay a certain fee to them, and then you can invest in ETFs or index trackers at a very low fee. For example, 0.07 percent a year for an ETF tracking the UK market. But what you're paying for really is the supposed expertise of these fund managers who can allocate your assets appropriately with a view of gaining the best returns. So unless you're Or a sophisticated investor who's capable of making asset allocation calls or stock selection, then paying a tiny bit more for the expertise of these fund managers、uh, might be worth it. It all sounds very sort of one size fits all, though. I mean, do these、um, new services make any allowance、uh, for your individual circumstances? Do they do, for instance, what an advisor would have done in times gone by and sit you down and make you fill in a great big long form about how much money you're prepared to lose and、uh, and all those sorts of things? It depends. There's a mix out there. So、uh, Alan Miller's new funds, for example, the investor does not have to fill out a risk questionnaire, which essentially puts The responsibility and liability upon the end investor.、Um, however, the platform does offer you the opportunity to select between different risk-graded funds and create a mix of them. So, for example, you can invest in a share-based absolute return fund or a bond fund, or you can have a mix of them. 
with nutmeg you do fill out a risk questionnaire Uh, And then they offer a range of risk-graded portfolios. So if you're looking for low risk, protect your capital, uh, and arguably slightly lower returns, then they'll have a portfolio that caters to your need. Okay, so it sounds like one of the most important decisions, how much risk you're prepared to take, is, is your decision alone. What does the regulator think of all this? First off, the regulator is encouraging these startup online platforms as a way to service those investors that can't afford advice but do need some kind of information before they invest. However, the regulator is acutely aware of the fact that a lot of the times investors might be going to these new platforms and thinking they're actually receiving advice when in fact they're not, which means that they don't have an extra layer of protection in place if things go wrong with their investment. So at the moment, the Financial Conduct Authority is consulting on making clear the difference between financial advice and guidance, which is offered by some of these sites. Thank you very much, Emma. There's more on managed portfolio services in this weekend's FT Money. You can also read Terry Smith's thoughts on the daft names that companies give their funds. And Ken Fisher explains why banker bashing might feel satisfying now, but will turn out very expensive in the longer term. We've got the latest share tips from Investors Chronicle and an interview with Hunter Davis, the biographer of The Beatles. The Money Show will be back next week, but for now it's goodbye from me, James, Emma and our special guest Tom McPhail. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.